Hello and welcome back to Catching Up on Capitol Hill, a series in which we discuss the latest in tax legislation and in tax policy. I'm your host, John Gimigliano. Today we continue our discussion of the Biden tax plan and today turn to the topic of Biden's proposed 21% tax on foreign earnings. To tackle this topic, today we are joined by what I like to think of as the dream team in terms of considering policy options for a minimum tax on foreign earnings. We are joined by our regular panelist, KPMG principal Jen Acuna, who you may recall, was a lead drafter of the TCJA during her time on the Senate Finance Committee and a lead developer of our current global intangible low tax income regime, the guilty. Now, in thinking about the Biden plan, we have often observed that it appears to be similar to or at least inspired in places by President Obama's tax reform proposals back in 2015 and 2016. To that end, we are joined by special guest today, Danielle Rolfus. Danielle is an international tax partner in KPMG's Washington National Tax Office, and prior to joining KPMG, was international tax counsel at the Department of Treasury during the Obama administration. While at Treasury, Danielle was one of the lead developers of the Treasury International Tax Reform Proposal. So, with Jen and Danielle, we've got perspective of the past, the present, and maybe the future on policy choices and options for a foreign minimum tax. So, okay, let's get into the discussion. Let me start with this observation. And, you know, I don't think this is a controversial thing to say, so I'll just say it. But in my observations going back to 2008 and into the present, President Obama and President Trump don't always appear to see eye to eye in their policy choices. So with that, Danielle, let me ask you, and then Jen, I'd like you to follow on with your thoughts. How is it then that both President Obama and President Trump more or less came to the same policy choice on this question of taxing foreign earnings? Go ahead, Danielle. Well, and it really dates before President Trump going all the way back to the early camp proposals a concern that was driven largely by the revenue estimators, that if the U.S. went to a purely territorial system, meaning zero tax on foreign earnings, that the amount of revenue that the U.S. would be giving up would far exceed the amount of revenue that the U.S. collected from dividends that were paid by foreign subsidiaries under our old deferral system, the amount of revenue that the U.S. would be giving up would far exceed that because going to zero on foreign income would create a very large temptation for U.S. multinationals to erode the U.S. tax base and actually shift income that had been taxed in the U.S., you know, hadn't traditionally been CFC income, into CFCs. We all know those, those incentives have long existed, even under our deferral system. But the revenue estimators believed that those incentives would be much stronger in a pure territorial system. That's exactly right, Danielle. And it's funny because, you know, people say you know, it's all about the blended rate. Well, you know, the rate differential between any U.S. rate versus zero for offshore is, is more. I mean, there's going to be push. And that's why the camp proposal at the Ways and Means Committee and the Obama proposal, and it was just really and there was a Senate Finance Committee proposal in the options for um, tax reform. They really focused on how do you prevent base, base erosion when you move to the territorial system. And, um, and that was really kind of viewed as a bipartisan position to prevent base erosion. And it, it was just a matter of how. 
So then both these proposals kind of come to the same conclusion in terms of we've got a problem. We have to have some measure, anti-base erosion measure to solve it. So, Danielle, let me come back to you then. Okay, we've illustrated these common threads in both guilty and the Obama proposal on a mintax. But what about the differences? Sure, in both cases, they're kind of trying to save, solve for the same problem, but there must be important distinctions between the two. Can you outline some of those for us, at least based upon what we think we know about the, the Biden plan and, and analogizing that to the Obama proposal? Well, first would just be the rate. So the concern with those base erosion incentives was stronger in the Obama administration. President Obama proposed a 19% minimum rate. Biden has proposed a 21% minimum rate. The Obama rate actually gets real close to the 21% if you take into account that the Obama administration would have imposed a haircut on the foreign taxes that counted. And I'm actually not remembering exactly what that percentage haircut was, but it, I think if we did the math, we'd find we got really close to 21%. And, and interestingly enough, we ended up with a haircut on foreign tax credits under the guilty regime in the TCJA. So headline rate is one. The next, I would say, biggest difference is that the Obama administration would have imposed that 19% minimum tax rate on a country-by-country country basis. And Jen already alluded to the why. The concern was, you know, even if you had a blended rate across all your foreign CFCs that exceeded whatever your minimum tax rate was, I think, say, your minimum rate's 19%. If you have a blended rate that exceeds 19%, but you have significant operations in Japan and Germany so that you have some very high tax countries, and then you'd still have equal incentive to erode as much as you could of income into zero tax countries because the blended rate would still be above 19%. So the Obama administration proposed a country-by-country country minimum tax. I would say the next big difference, and this is kind of mechanical, I'm not sure how relevant it would be going forward, is the Obama minimum tax was actually a true top-up tax. So we actually, in our, when we had the, we had the the luck of not having to actually draft statutory language. We didn't get that far. So it's much easier to talk about these things, you know, in paragraph form. But our proposal was that for each country, you would compute a foreign effective tax rate. And if that foreign effective tax rate fell below 19%, you would just top it up. So if your foreign effective tax rate was 15%, you would pay 5% tax on the base as computed under U.S. principles. Because and, and, and because it was country by country, and there can be some real harshness in country by country, especially if U.S. and foreign law differ, you know, and especially there's NOL carry forwards that the U.S. doesn't see, for example, we actually proposed a multi-year averaging to try to deal with differences in the U.S. and foreign base. And I, one of the criticisms of guilty has been sort of the harshness of it being a totally annual calculation. I think the drafters rebuttal to that would probably be that, well, we allowed country by country offsets so that for really large multinationals, that helps with, the, you know, dealing with, you know, a, a difference in one country's base. I think, though, the last really important difference, and this really can't be understated between Obama and what we have now, is that the Obama administration would have denied deductions 
that were allocable to exempt income. So in my example, I said I had a taxpayer that only paid foreign tax of 15% in the country and the minimum tax rate was 19%. So I had a top up, I had to pay tax at 4% on that foreign income. If the U.S. had deductions that were allocable to that CFC, for example, interest that's deductible in the U.S., the portion of interest that was deductible to that particular CFC that only paid tax at a 4% rate in the U.S. for that year would only be deductible at a 4% rate. So if you contrast that to guilty, you know, taxpayers have complained about the fact that guilty, it's not a top-up tax. Instead, it's a full inclusion system where you include the entire amount on the U.S. return and then you rely on the foreign tax credit mechanism in order to get it down, as well as the deduction, you know, of 50% of the guilty inclusion provided that you have your the taxable income limit doesn't kick in. People have complained about the fact that some taxpayers that are foreign tax credit limited find themselves having not getting the benefit of all of those in expense deductions. There's an effective expense disallowance through the foreign tax credit mechanism. But Obama would have gone straight, <laughs> straight to those expenses and just denied them out of the box. And that, especially when you're talking about interest that's deducted in the U.S. and might relate to foreign acquisitions or just support, you know, foreign investment, that can be a really big number. Well, those are really important distinctions, right? These are not small things, and I think they're important for people to think about. And here's why, and it really goes back to the very first Biden tax plan episode we did, which was, I think it was called something like, where is it? Because we don't really have a Biden plan in the traditional way. Sure, you know, different think tanks have written about it, and there have been you know, reporters who've written about it who've, I think, claimed to have seen it. But I haven't, and none of us have. So we don't exactly know. And some of these articles just say that Biden's proposing to double the guilty rate. And I'm not 100% sure that's true. Maybe that he'll end up there. But until we see it in writing, I'm not sure we can be sure that, that that's what he's talking about. And so all the things you just outlined, Danielle, I think are really important things for people just to think about rather than just working inside the current guilty regime with a doubled rate, that there could be these other important features that are, that are differences. So, Jen. Listening to Danielle outline those distinguishable features, maybe there are people out there who are listening thinking, hey, you know, those alternatives to guilty make sense. But almost every policy option involves a trade-off, right? So guilty looks the way it does for a reason. Can you discuss a little bit why guilty is designed as it is, maybe with some focus on the differences that Danielle just outlined? So, you know, it's interesting just to make a point, you know, based on our discussion you know, about the Obama provision. You know, one thing that's really important to note when we're talking about the Biden proposal is that the administration doesn't draft the actual legislation. You know, they take a role in it, but we really do have to look at the proposals that are out there. And a lot of those are consistent with that Obama proposal. Like you have Senator Wyden, who's on the who's ranking member of the Senate Finance Committee, who really pushed a proposal that was very similar to the Obama position. So that's something to, to note. With respect to guilty... Like you said, there's so many different trade-offs. As we mentioned, the first crack at international reform was back in 2012, a long, long time before the Trump administration and many years prior to the passage of the TCJA. And, you know, that took the anti-base provision, and it was, it was called, the shorthand was option C, and that was a CFC by CFC test. It, the rate was 15%, so it was, it was actually smack dab in between 
the guilty and the Obama proposal at 15%. And it also had, it was functioned as a subpart F inclusion. It did not have, you know, a foreign tax credit haircut, which by the way, thank you, Danielle. That was where we found that foreign tax credit haircut was in that Obama administration proposal. And we adopted it gratefully in the guilty. It was an excellent idea. And because of the pushback against the camp proposal, that's where it started to morph into what's now called the guilty, right? First, the rate. The rate was viewed as prohibitive. And we heard from taxpayers that it was much too high. It would put a lot of pressure on inversions, and it would put a lot of pressure on foreign acquisitions of U.S. targets. So, you know, members responded to that by lowering the rate to 10.5. Originally, the goal was to have a single-digit rate. But, of course, you know how these things work out. When you need more revenue, you have to increase rates. Next, the guilty, the global analysis. That was a real sticking point politically. Why? Because stakeholders said, absolutely not. No, this would be highly unfair if it were that that's not the way we conduct our business. And that resonated with members. They wanted a proposal that would both raise revenue and would also tick a lot of the boxes that had come into question during the analysis of the camp proposal and of the Obama administration proposal, right? Because, you know, we had these numerous proposals out there and they wound up actually kind of settling uh, somewhere in between. So it was all trade-offs. It's such a good reminder that um, we could talk policy all day long. That's what we love to do. But, you know, the best policy in the world is kind of meaningless if it can't get the votes. And so we live in the real world here, whether we like to pretend we do or don't, that ultimately any, and you know, the, a Biden administration is going to have to live with this reality as well as it winds its way through the House and the Senate. They've got to produce something that ultimately can get the votes. And some of the, the policy options that both Danielle, you've talked about, and Jen have talked about, these are things that are going to have to run the gauntlet, the, the political gauntlet uh, as, as well. Okay, last question. Look, Biden is talking about this minimum tax proposal, which may or may not be working within the guilty regime. Okay, so we get it. But it's really just one of the features that hold up the larger architecture of this international system. There are other pieces out there that we're not talking about. So no word on FDII, no word on the beat. Jen, I've heard you say many times that FDII was born, at least in part, to balance out the base erosion incentive to move income into lower guilty rate and out of the higher domestic rate. So just talking about this 7% spread that exists in the Biden proposal, the 21% min rate, min tax rate with the 28% corporate rate, what do you think the dynamic of that spread is? Is it close enough that maybe we don't need FDII? It's funny because the whole purpose of having FDII was to, to shrink that rate differential from the guilty rate and the headline rate so that you don't encourage a shifting of offshore earnings and earnings that would have otherwise been earned in the United States debt. So that rate differential is significant. You know, it is not insignificant, but it's interesting when that shrinks between the guilty and the headline rate, what would be the political push to get rid of FDII, right? Because the talking point with respect to FDII is that it encourages U.S. income and jobs in the United States. So, I mean, it would really take some externality, maybe like a WTO situation, in order to really put some political push to get rid of it altogether. 
I get it, but if you know, if as the, these two rates approach each other, the bin tax rate and the the corporate rate, it, it, the the other talking point, which is the rationale, which is it's not an incentive system; it's an anti-base erosion measure that starts to slip away from you when you talk to the WTO, right? As these two rates get close to each other, just I hear what you're saying, Jen, but it's that's the flip side of that as well. But I will note that the FDII does not cost revenue when there is no rate differential, right? Because there isn't a whole lot of pickup. Yep. Um, with respect to the FDI. Fair point. So, Danielle, one other question for you then. We haven't heard about other anti-base erosion measures. Do you think there's the possibility that there could be other anti-base erosion measures necessary in this world, you know, necessitated by what we're talking about in terms of this min tax rate that could be lurking out there that they might want to think of? Well, I already highlighted denying deductions that are allocable to exempt or lower taxed income, and I think that would probably be high on the list. We haven't talked about inbound at all in this conversation, and, you know, the TCJA included the BEAT proposal. I think there's a lot of valid criticisms of where the BEAT misses the mark or overshoots. So I could imagine if you were taking another look at tax reform, wanting to try to get that more right. The Obama proposal included really strong interest stripping provisions that were primarily targeted at inbound that would have denied any deduction in the U.S. for interest where a company that was not parented in the U.S. was disproportionately leveraged in the U.S. It's very complicated, but a proposal that looked an awful lot like that got very far along and was actually pulled only at the very last minute as part of TCJA. So that's an Obama proposal that got very far along in the TCJA process. It was called 163N in the TCJA iteration. Obama had other proposals on interest that are not purely international, but just a haircut interest deduction to try to address the preferential treatment for interest over equity. So there was kind of a, a doubling down on interest deductions by denying deductions for, you know, outbounds, inbounds, and then haircutting them all together. So that, I, I haven't heard as much talk about, you know, the haircut recently, but those would be other places that I would look. Wow. Well, that is, I mean, the, the insight from both of you having, you know, worked on these different proposals, I think is really valuable. And it goes back to what we were saying is that I, I just think we, we can't assume we know too much about where this proposal, especially as it relates to the minimum tax, is going or that it's everything. All right. We haven't seen a single document where we can look inside the four corners and say this entirely inside this four corners is exactly the Biden plan that we have pieces of it kind of scattered all throughout his website and other places. So just trying to imagine how these pieces fit together is going to be an exercise I think that we're going to be involved in throughout the fall, and then we'll see what happens in November and maybe continuing into next year. Well, that's all for this week. I have to say that was an epic episode. So Jen and Danielle, thank you both for some of that in the room where it happens insight. Whether or not we end up with a Biden administration and whether that Biden administration would try and work within the guilty regime as we know it or just begin with a clean slate is really going to be one of the interesting questions to watch for. Many of you no doubt recall that after the TCJA was enacted, many taxpayers voiced frustration about the guilty and how to implement it. And in many cases, those frustrations were valid. But in terms of simply just scrapping the guilty, that may not be easy either. A Biden administration could very well run into the old devil you know versus the one you don't kind of pushback from taxpayers. 
And well, wouldn't that be a turn for some taxpayers to say maybe the guilty isn't so bad after all? I'm not saying that would happen, but it could. And that's one of the many challenges that would face the Biden Treasury as it tries to sell its tax plan to Congress. And I, I know we're getting ahead of ourselves here, but hey, that's what we do here. With that, I'll leave you for this week. We're off next week for the Labor Day holiday, but we'll be back to you soon thereafter. Thanks again for tuning in to Catching Up on Capitol Hill, and I hope to see you soon. 